This morning I want to carry on in our Being Human series. We've taken a break over the last couple of weeks with the Easter period. And I want to pick up, uh, God willing, over the next three Sundays up to the end of the month on the Being Human series. And this morning I want to deal with being human, being married. Please don't turn off if that doesn't apply to you. Um, you, We may need people who will at least be able to remind those who are married of some of the things that we thought about together this morning. It's partly prompted uh, that the timing of this was was good given David and Karen's wedding during the week. They were married here uh, and are off, I think, in South Africa at the minute on uh, honeymoon. And anyway, having at least given two Sundays uh, uh, to those of you who are unmarried, I mean, not given to you, you didn't ask for them, you got it whether you wanted it. Anyway, you know what I mean. Um, I thought this morning it would be helpful for us to look at this theme of being married The latest annual statistical review, according to the reports in the media this week, indicate that Britain is going through an epidemic of relationship breakdown. Here are the statistics, some of them. We now have the lowest number of marriages taking place in the UK since records began. In 1972, there were 480,000 marriages. The latest figures show that that's down to 284,000. And even with the reduction in marriages, divorce runs at about 160,000 per year. So we're close on saying that two out of every three marriages ends in divorce. In 1980, 12% of all births were to unmarried parents. Now 43% are and rising. 52% of babies in Wales and 55% in the north of England are born to one parent. Although there are no hard statistics, it's believed that cohabiting couples are even less likely to stay together than married couples. An interesting aspect of this is that the reports in the media have concentrated on some of the spin-off of this and suggest that the consequence of the relationship breakdowns is that we have, quote, communities with higher levels of isolation and lower levels of trust. Back in 1958, 60% apparently of people thought that most other people were trustworthy. 60%. Today, the same survey used in the same way suggests that only 29% of people think that other people are trustworthy. It's a sign, say the reports, that the glue which holds our society together is weakening. The loss of what is referred to as social capital may explain an almost five-fold increase in complaints about neighbours in the past 20 years. Fear about crime and antisocial behaviour continues to rise. And it was just a few months ago that David Cameron, leader of the Conservatives, decided to put the issues of marriage and family back on the political agenda and has been setting the pace on that a little since. He's not coming from a a traditional or exclusively Christian perspective, He declared himself to be extremely proud of supporting the civil partnerships legislation. But he is very concerned about marriage, and it's interesting. He believes there's a distinction. David Cameron's view of Britain isn't quite the new New York of the Doctor Who scriptwriters, but nevertheless, it is changing. In this series, we have had a look at singleness and the living alone issues, and this morning I want to take the opportunity to reflect on a few key Bible passages on marriage, as in Christian terms anyway, being human is quite likely to include being married. 
Roy was asking me this morning, does that mean that Dorothy will have right to reply after I finish this morning? And being the secure, confident uh, person that I am, the answer is absolutely not. (laughs) The first passage I want to read is taken from Genesis chapter 2. You'll find it on page 5 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read three different passages of scripture and then we're going to take a few minutes to look at each of them. Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 25, page 5 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5. You might like to turn to that. You'll find it on page 1176 of the copies of the Bible in the pew, page 1176. And I want to begin reading at verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 to the end of the chapter. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And the final reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you'll find that reading on page 1148, 1148 of the copy of the Bible in the pew. And here we have a bit more of Paul's straight talking. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Those are the three readings from Scripture that are going to shape uh, the structure of what I want to think about with you this morning. Here are the headings. Mutual respect, mutual submission, and mutual responsibility in marriage. It's nice not to have to use myself as an illustration. Over the years, there have been so many people that we have taken time with in preparing for marriage uh, and talked through these three passages. So if you were one of those, you'll not mind if I use you as illustration here. No, I promise I won't do that at all uh, in what we're doing. In the scope of the sermon and the time available, I'm going to generalize. I am going to make sweeping statements. I'm not going to take time to explain all the exceptions. I'm sure you will appreciate that. But I do want at the outset to say I am not ignorant of the difficulties that Christians, like anybody else, face in marriage relationships. Over 20 years in pastoral ministry, I have seen a fair bit. But I want to begin with this theme of mutual respect, based on the reading in Genesis chapter 2. And particularly verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. I was always puzzled by this. I was always puzzled, why the man? Why does it not say anything to the woman? Is she so perfect? Though I have also noticed over the years in preaching that there is much more said about marriage directed directly to men than to women. Um, And the reason in this particular case is very simple. In this context, in the context in which it was written, it was the woman who left her father and mother to become united to her husband. I always remember understanding this or seeing this in a documentary on the Maasai people. Part of it covered marriage tradition in their culture. And it showed the women of the village priming the young bride for her wedding. I think they gave her a crash course in sex and how to keep her husband happy and cook for him and all the rest of it. And the next day she was escorted from her village by her community to her husband's village and became part of his extended family under the authority of his father. And it was just the same in Bible times and it is still the same in many cultures today. Think of Abraham who sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. The servant goes and he finds Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, in the land of Abraham's origin and from among his own people. And she is carried graciously, but to some extent like property, back to Isaac's tent and under the authority of the great patriarch Abraham until he passes away and Isaac takes his place. And that's the way it was and still is in many cultures of the world. All this falling in love and getting married stuff is a much more recent Western development, really. One of my old sociology textbooks from the 1970s records the practice of arranged marriages in Ireland, which was still active up to the 1930s, where one family would appoint a speaker who would speak on behalf of the potential groom's family to the potential bride's family. The bride's father would then come and walk the lands, to see what this young man might have to provide for his daughter. 
The groom's father would then, through the speaker, negotiate the number of cows that would come with the wife. This was all in Ireland in the last hundred years. The pair would then be seen out walking with a chaperone, and the knot would be tied and well wetted with Guinness and Ishkabah. One possible option suggested to me for life beyond Windsor for me was to set up a marriage consultancy and to do what pastors do in Nepal and other countries of the world and go out and find a few men or a few women and arrange a few marriages. Anyway, I digress. The point is that the woman in the culture left her family and had to cleave to her husband to survive because she really didn't belong anymore back in her own culture. She was now part of an extended family and household in a different setting. She had very little by way of rights and was largely dependent upon her husband and his family economically and in every way. And you can see how easily it came to be that wives were very often treated just as slaves or as sex objects or baby factories. And it's into this culture and every culture like it or with tendencies like it, and ours really isn't that much different, that we hear the words of scripture that say a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Even if he stays within the orbit of his father's household, which in its context was very likely, the man needs to learn to respect his wife as himself. She is not an appendage. She is not a slave. She is not a sex object. And the parents need to respect the new relationship that now exists between their son and this woman. She is not just another pair of hands to work the fields. Mutual respect for one another as husband and wife, as partners, The man respecting his wife as part of himself, one flesh with her in every sense, not just in terms of sexual union, is what the scripture is teaching clearly here. Mutual respect, parents respecting the new relationship that has been established, forms the basis of decent, supportive relationships. We don't have the nuclear isolation of modern Western lifestyles in the Bible. But the extended family shouldn't mean patriarchal or matriarchal dictatorship, which is what Genesis is talking about here. It means there should be a respect for the boundaries without isolating people or separating people. We need to think about it probably a little the other way around. There needs to be this respect, this mutual respect between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship and a respect given to them and reciprocated by them to the wider family circle as well. I suppose in our lingo you could put it that men need to remember that wives are not arm candy. The terminology about keeping a wife barefoot, pregnant and tied to the kitchen sink is utterly abhorrent to scripture and ought to be utterly abhorrent within the Christian tradition. The expectations of scripture are high. The relationship should be one of mutual respect. Christian partners and parents need to see this as the baseline starting position. Which leads me to the second heading which is mutual submission based on the passage in Ephesians 5 uh, and verse 21 which I started with deliberately 
the Bible might be inspired, but not every translation or every comment added by the translators is inspired. So you can happily, in my opinion, ignore the paragraph division that is put in between verse 21 and verse 22 of Ephesians 5, if you're looking at the text there. And particularly if you're looking at the New International Version, you'll see that not only did they slip a huge paragraph break in, but they had the cheek to put in a heading, which makes it look like you separate out verse 21 from verse 22. The passage flows seamlessly from Paul talking to the church to applying that teaching to husbands and wives. So he is saying to the church, and he is saying to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The principle in marriage is mutual submission in Christ. We'll see that very clearly when we come to the third point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Mutual submission looks different or has a different emphasis for the husband and the wife. But it's the basic principle. It seems to me that verse 33 of that passage of Ephesians 5 is Paul's summary of what he's been driving at in these verses. Each one of you should love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's his summary, his last word on the subject to the Ephesians. The wife, given the way women tended to be treated by men, would not necessarily respect, never mind submit to her husband. For many women, marriage was, and tragically still is, about survival. But the kind of husband Paul envisages is not remotely typical of the context in which the Ephesians lived. And there is in this passage, if you noticed when I read it, much more written to and about the husband than about the wife. Why, why is most of what is written and preached on this passage to do with women and submission? It's not Paul's emphasis in this passage. Look at it from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love them in the same way in which he gave himself up for the church. In other words, Christ went to the cross for the church. That's the model for husbands in terms of loving their wives. Jesus invested everything for the good of the church. This is what Christian husbands are expected to do for their wives. Indeed, they are to love their wives, as it says in verse 28, as their own bodies. They are to care for their wives as Christ cares for the church. And if you read from the beginning of the letter, one of the big themes in this whole passage is the theme of just how much Christ cares for the church. I can just imagine all these men sitting in Ephesus listening to Paul's letter being read out in the opening chapters, rejoicing in what Christ has done for them. They probably weren't as reserved as us Irish Baptists. There were probably a few amens and hallelujahs and things. And listening to how, though once they were foreigners and strangers, outcasts and outsiders to God's grace, they are now, by virtue of Christ's death on the cross, fully accepted by God. The whole theme of Ephesians chapter 2. And now I envisage them sitting with a look of shock on their faces as they are told, and by the way guys, that's exactly the way you're supposed to care for your wives. I am sure in its context it was a bit of a shock. It's a total reversal 
of culture and cultural expectations in the first century. But also in the 21st. And look at verse 30. There's that Genesis 2 passage again. But now, if you'll forgive the pun, it has been well fleshed out for us by Paul. You see, I think, and I can speak with a certain amount of authority on this subject, that men are generally pretty selfish. We can be selfish in marriage and family life just like any other place. Too often the charge led against us of being in marriage for what we get out of it and little more sticks because it's true. Guys, reflecting on this passage, it occurs to me that a wife ought to be able to get a sense of what Jesus Christ is like from the experience of being married to you. That thought occurred to me when I was preparing this. And it has left me with a sick feeling in my stomach ever since. It occurs to me that the implication of what Paul is saying here is that a wife ought to be able to get a sense of what Jesus Christ is like from the experience of being married to you. There is mutual submission in Christ. Husbands submit to Christ's example in how they love their wives and loving them as their own bodies And wives submit to their husband's leadership and love by respecting them. Which takes me to mutual responsibility and the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Which you might like to go back to because it's worth just seeing again the way in which Paul has constructed this very, very carefully. And I've titled this Mutual Responsibility. It's a most interesting passage. Not least because it exists in the Bible. Not least because it's pretty straightforward. In marriage there is mutual responsibility for sexual expression and fulfilment. There's no doubt that sexual frustration is one of the great killers of respect and appreciation in marriage. Given the sexually explicit nature of our society, the expectations and attitudes people take into marriage are often unreal and unreasonable. Men and women, if you'll forgive the generalization, tend to work slightly differently when it comes to sex and sexual arousal and sexual satisfaction. Jesus certainly understood men, and he was under no illusions about the men who were with him, his disciples. And it's a very specific address to men he gives in the Sermon on the Mount, which sort of almost says, when you guys are following me along the roads of Galilee, don't lust after other women. I know what you're like. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you can hear the disciples think, oh, and he's watching. In marriage, sexual expression and experience should be mutually beneficial. Neither the man or the woman has authority over the other in this area. Whatever headship in Ephesians means, it doesn't mean sexual domination. I can't think of any other passage of scripture which more explicitly spells out this concept of mutuality. Every phrase in the passage is carefully chosen. Every phrase is carefully balanced and weighted. 
Paul knows that in Corinth expectations will not run along the lines he's setting down. So like a good lawyer, doesn't leave any room open for misunderstanding. There's no wiggle room for anyone, any man who wants to twist Paul's teaching to suit their male chauvinistic tendencies. Or for any woman who wants to perpetuate ideas of sexual domination as might have been modelled in some of the sexual fertility cults of the day. Every phrase is mirrored from man to woman, from woman to man, in terms of mutual responsibility in their sexual relationship. The clear implication of this is that mutual responsibility between a husband and wife in regard to sexuality will require conversation, discussion, and maybe even negotiation. Sex Possibly the most powerful and potent element of a marriage, often for many people, is the one thing that it's hardest to talk about. Couples can discuss holidays, houses, children, politics, whatever, but sometimes struggle with sex. It's very difficult to see how there can be the kind of mutuality of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, And that be achieved without some level of discussion and conversation. Being human and being married in Christian terms means you need to talk even about sex. I think that all too often Christians are heard to promote marriage but not heard talking about how a good marriage works. All too often the Bible is quoted as the basis for promoting marriage but not for what it has to say about how a marriage should be conducted. And yet, in these three short passages of Scripture, the teaching that is given to us is practical and explicit. It's helpful, and it requires us as Christians to engage with it. Let me say to those of you who are married here today, if you have difficulty discussing your relationship and aspects of your relationship, start by talking about Scripture. You don't even need to get personal to get started. You only need to start talking about Genesis 2 and what does it mean, Ephesians 5 and what does it mean, 1 Corinthians 7 and what does it mean, and that will get you started. That's why it's there. When you bring together Genesis chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you get a good and helpful indication that being human and being married in Christian terms should mean mutual respect, mutual submission, and mutual responsibility. These are the kind of marriage relationships that the Bible promotes, and those will be of benefit to those in those relationships and to the wider community, and will speak well of Jesus Christ.